How are we doing? Good, good. If you have your Bibles, grab those. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 is where we will start. Genesis 2.15, we are six weeks into our uh, new series, uh, and we're just really just looking at spiritual habits, spiritual foundations, just really getting back to the basics of who we are as believers, who we are uh, as the church, looking at those things that are uh, very important uh, to who we are as the men and women of God, looking very intently and seriously uh, about just things that are important to the heart of God. And so we just wanted to uh, get back to that and look at that, especially as we kick off the new year. Uh, And this will take us up into Easter. Um, And so we will, uh, just the Sunday before Easter, finish up and wrap up this series. And so if you've missed any portion of this series so far, you can go back and catch that uh, on our website or on our app. And so I just want to press the app for just a moment because that's a good way just to follow along today. We're not going to have all the scriptures and things on the screen uh, this morning. Um, There's a ton of scripture that we're going to look at. Just like last week as we looked at the Holy Spirit, who He is, His attributes, different things like that. Uh, This morning we're going to look at salvation and what it means to be saved, what it means to be uh, a child of God, what it means to exactly what we just sung, it is well with my soul. And so looking at what that means and how we even get to that place and what true salvation is. And so like I said, you can follow along on the app this morning if you need to download that feel free to do that Uh, but in the title bar on the very bottom you go to worship and then sermon notes and they are uh, lined up there for you by order of date and so you can check that out Um, so I'm going to ask you if you join me as we pray and then we'll jump in this morning father we love you Lord Jesus oh we need you oh father God I need you Um, and so God I just pray Lord Jesus this morning that we give you room to move and act and do as you see fit Father God, I don't care what our order of service looks like. I don't care what the plan of our heart is. Father, if it doesn't match up to you, then we pray, Lord, that you would scrap it and that you would do whatever you see fit in this place. Father, we want to give your Holy Spirit freedom to move, Lord, as we looked at last week. Father God, he is the one that draws. He is the one that woos. He is the one that, that shows lost men of their great need for you. And so, Father God, as we talk about salvation, as we look about what it means to be born again, Father God, we pray that your Holy Spirit be heavy heavy in this place and upon the heart of man. And so, God, we acknowledge and recognize that apart from you, we're nothing. Father, I pray this morning that we feel the weight of your scriptures. Father, God, that 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 weight of sin and separation would crush us to the point of no return. And, Father, in that moment, you swoop in and that you pick us up and you put us back together. Father, I pray for the heart in here, as I do every week, that doesn't know you. God, I beg of you to save. Father, please save. Father God, we just thank you, we praise you, Lord Jesus, I ask God that you move in a mighty, mighty way in this place. Shall we pray? Amen. So, um, so for me, this morning, what we're going to talk about is definitely, uh, I feel like one of those things I, that, that is high on my list of who I am as, as a follower of Christ and just um, even as a pastor, evangelism is one of the things that I feel like is just definitely one of the gifts that I've got. I just, I'm, I'm just definitely lean that way. So this morning is something that really just kind of gets me going, excites me and gets me fired up. And so um, uh, with that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at four points this morning. So for you type Ayers, I'm going to he- go ahead and give you that. The first thing that we're going to look at is our condition. The second thing we're going to look at is the fix, how we get fixed from that condition um, is the third thing. And then the fourth thing is the effects of that change of the condition from which we're saved by. What happens there, some effects and things that take place. 
Um, and so Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 is where we're going to be. And so we're going to look at first our condition. We need to begin at the very beginning, and then we're going to work our way through. And so we're going to look at Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, because that's going to set up for us this Genesis 3 world that we live in. And you'll see what I mean here in just a moment as I explain that a little bit further. Genesis 2, 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, are sh you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And so Adam and Eve, pretty simple so far, leading up to all of this, the only two rules that they really have is this, is just work and keep the land and not eat of the tree. I mean, how easy is that, right? Two, two things not to do, or two, one thing to do and one thing not to do. Just don't eat of the tree. And then work the land and take care of the land that I've given you, that I've created for you. That's it. That's the two rules. Seems pretty simple, doesn't it? Good, you didn't answer because that was a setup. Because it's really not, isn't it? Now turn to Genesis 3 and let's see what happens. Genesis 3, starting in verse 6, it says this. So when the woman, that's Eve, saw that the tree was good for food. What tree? The tree that, told, that God told them not to eat of. So when she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do? She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. No! Adam, are you kidding me? Dang it, boy, what are you? Oh, right? I mean, you know God said not to. And what does he do? He's with woman. He's there with Eve. And so this, I'm just going to step over here for a moment while I'm here, because this is a completely different sermon series, a completely different sermon this morning. So I'm just going to push pause for a second, because this one's going to be coming in the future. I'm just feeling God kind of stirring my heart and soul as I study and as I read and as I just see kind of what our world's plagued with. But as I look at this, I mean, this is a man's sermon is what this is. Adam, what are you doing? Adams, what are you doing? We are called to lead our wife. We are called to, to say no when we need to say no. He was with her and he allowed that to happen. Come on, man. We, we've got to step up. We can't be Adam. We're called to lead. We're called to, 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 to lay out our life in front of our wife. We are called to say no in the difficult moments. Again, different sermon for a different day. That will be coming. Um, but I just, as I read this and as I look at this, Adam knew better. And what did Adam do? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And you'll see in this story how he starts to blame Eve. No, no, Bo, you were there. It's your fault. God told you not to, and you did. And so that's what we see. They disobeyed God, and as they disobeyed God, what happens? Sin enters the world. You've got this perfect world that they're living in in communion with God, and now that they sin, and look at what happens as verse 7 continues to go on. It says, The eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. So what that implies is this, is that the whole time they'd been naked and they never knew it. The whole time they didn't even know that this was wrong or that this was right or this was good or this was, it, everything was just perfect and in harmony the way that God had created it and it was working and functioning the way that God had created and set out for it to be. And then what did they do? They disobey God and when they disobey God, sin is the world and it fractures and messes up everything. That's what sin always do, and then always do, always does. And then look at what happens next as the verse continues. It said, and they, they sue, sued fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And what I've got to say about that is that we have been doing that ever since the fall. Ever since sin has entered the world, we've been doing the exact same thing that Adam and Eve did here. They sin against God, and then they try to what? Cover it up. They try to hide their nakedness from God. 
And God sees right through it every time. And we're no different, are we? We do the exact same thing. We try to cover up our sin. We try to cover up our shame. We try to justify. We try to hide motives. We, try, we, we don't want to be laid naked and bare. And I'm not talking about physical nakedness. I'm talking about your motives and your heart is revealed and known. And at this time, there is something that changes relationally with each other and with God. Why? Because sin fractures and messes up everything. And so my question for us this morning, what does this mean? Romans 5. Turn on over to the New Testament. We're going to hang out in Romans for a little bit. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12, and this is what it says. It says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that one man being Adam, so sin enters the world, it's accredited to Adam, Adam through him, and death through sin. And so what we know about sin is this is what it does, is it says death comes with sin. And so there's two, two things we need to talk about for just a second as we refer to sin here. Because sin brings about death, sin brings about physical death. And we know that, and we feel that, right? We've lost loved ones. We've driven by graveyards. We've been to funerals of, of people that we care for and love. So, so we know the physical death of things. And so sin, as a result of sin, we get death. We die. So, so some good news for you this morning. You're going to die. You can try to be as healthy as you want to be. You can get your run on. You can take supplements and vitamins, and you can eat as healthy as you want. But you know what's going to happen? The end for you is death. Why? Because you're a sinner, because I'm a sinner, and we can work as hard as we want to, but the reality of this is that sin enters, and as sin enters, it, there's death with it. So there's physical death, and then the second death that comes with that, the, the two-part fold of, of death is spiritual. So on that day when Adam and Eve sins, it fractures their relationship with God. They're no longer in communion and fellowship and everything great and perfect and grand, but as a result of sin, what happens? They die spiritually. There's a separation between them and God. And so sin brings about death both physically and spiritually. And hear me, every single person that's ever born, we're going to see here in a few moments, every single person enters into the world that way. And look at what he says. So, so through one man, Adam, and death through sin. Uh, and so death spreads to all men, everyone ever born other than Jesus. Outside of Adam and Eve, everyone else other than Jesus ever born is born into sin. Why? Because it's imputed to us. It's imputed us because all sinned. We are sinners. We are sinners and we are separated from God. And we need something to bring us back, something to fix that separation. So verses 13 through 17, Paul goes in a little bit more depth about this one man's sin, about Adam and this one man's sacrifice for sin. He talks about Jesus, and, and that's what happens there in verses 13 through 17. And then we get to verse 18, and he sums it all up. And he says, Therefore, as one trespass leads to led to condemnation for all men, one man's sin led that everybody would be condemned. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. He's just simply saying that that's Jesus. Adam leads to sin. Jesus leads to life and salvation and rescue and redemption. That's what he's talking about. Verse 19, he says this, For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Adam in the garden, sinning, had an effect on us even today here in this place. You and I, the way that we're wired Everything in us rebels. It's the spirit of rebellion. It's the spirit of separation. It's, it's sin in us. And so his sin is imputed to us. That's what we just read. It's given to us. And so the reason we die is because we sin. Because of Adam's sin. And we are found in Adam. That was imputed to us. So let's continue for a moment, shall we? Romans 3. Turn over just a couple chapters to Romans. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 23. 
And just to drive home the reality of our condition, of our state, of who we are, the moment we're born, let's look at what it says here in Romans 3, 23. It says, for all, all of us born of Adam. We're born of the seed of Adam. Every single person ever born other than Jesus. Jesus wasn't born of Adam. As we talked last week, he was conceived how? By the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was born different. He, 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 was, um, uh, he came to be differently as he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. It says, for all have sinned. Every single person ever born. Every single one of us, we are born sinners. Why? Because it's been imputed to us as a result of our father, Adam. As a result of his seed. As a result of his sin. This is an uplifting and great sermon already, isn't it? Go get him, killer. But that's just a hard reality and a hard truth about who we are. The condition upon which we are in. And so whenever he uses this word here in Romans 3, and you kind of see it throughout the scriptures, this, this word for sin, for all have sinned, it's, it's a Greek word. In the Greek, it's this word that means to miss the mark. And so what that means is that God has set a standard, and, and all of us born, we have missed that mark, that standard which was set. And so this whole thought of, of sin to miss the mark is an archery term. So it made me think a little bit because I think sometimes we get, we get a little confused by it. And this is the only bow my wife would let me hold and have. Forgery, I know what you're thinking right now. Man, that guy's main card has been taken. Yes, it has, sir. And it's for the safety of everybody in this room. You're welcome. So when we think of sin, when we look at sin, when we talk about that, this picture, this archery term is to miss the mark. And so, so what we do, I think, so often is this, is as the mark has been set, how's the mark been set? It's been set by God, it's been set by Jesus. They have set the mark, they have set the standard upon which we are to live and we are to be. And so what happens is when we see sin and we think, oh, we've missed the mark, we think this archery term, we draw back our little bow. And as we draw back our little bow, we're shooting at a target. And our thought is this, is we let this, this arrow go and it maybe just nicks the top or maybe we just barely miss it uh, uh, or maybe we kind of land over here we don't just hit the bullseye in the middle but we're kind of over here but, but church you've got to hear something this morning because that's not the picture that's painted when we see the word sin in the scriptures no no the picture that's painted a better representation is this is that we take our bow and we are aiming for the mark but the problem is Jesus has set the standard he has set the mark but we take our bow and our arrow and what do we do we shoot at something that's not even not even in the general direction of the standard that Jesus has set so what's happened is much like in the garden something has caught our eye and so what do we do we load our bow and it's cute and it's nice and it's fun to think, oh, we just barely miss or we just nick. But no, 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 uh-uh, church, no. No, we go, we, go shooting after, we go shooting after something that's not even in the same general direction. So what do, what do we shoot after? We shoot after things that make us feel better about ourselves, that make us happy. That's a big, that's a big thing in our world right now. And I just think this, this, um, this world and culture that we're living in, you deserve, you know what you deserve? You're going to deserve what the scripture talks about this morning. You deserve judgment and hell and damnation and separation from God. Why? Because you're a sinner. You're not even shooting at the same target. I'm a sinner. I'm not even shooting at Jesus. Who cares about Jesus? Man, this, this apple over here is nice and fun and, and all bright and, it's, and, and I want it. I want to go after it because it makes me feel good and it's good for food. And it's going to help me learn and know and, and get ahead and be this. So if I cheat or if I lie or if I steal or if I have sex outside of the bounds of marriage or, if, or if, if I want to do whatever I want to do, my motives don't matter. I can do however I want to do. And so what I do is I just continue to load my bow and I continue just to miss the mark. Why? Because I am shooting after something and a standard and a mark that's, that's not even in the same realm of the one that's been set for us by Jesus. 
And what you've got to understand and what you need to hear this morning, church, is that every single one of us, as a result of Adam's sin, every single one of us, that sin has been imputed to us. So I don't care how long you've been in the church. I don't care how many Bible verses you know. I don't care how long you've been around this type of stuff. I mean, you could have been born at the altar, and whenever the doctor smacks your butt, it was, Jesus, instead of the, the cry that you have. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know what your, your past is or what your story is, but what I do know is this, is that's how we were, every single one of us imputed to us that. Forget this. I want that. And so the natural longing of my heart is to go this direction and further and further away from that direction. So when we see for all have sinned, it's to miss the mark. And it's, listen, he goes on and he describes it even more. And fall short, what, of the glory of God. So I believe that we need to deconstruct for just a moment. Because I think, I mean, like you see that and it's cute and it's funny. And okay, we got, yeah, I get it, sin and the balloons. And we're, we're aiming at a target that's not even. But, but I think we need to go a little bit deeper for a moment. Because I just, I really feel like there's this, this press in us that, that we think for a moment that we're born good. That we're born okay. And somewhere along the way, in that, we happen to choose wrong. And in that moment when we choose wrong, then we become sinners. Then we become wicked. But I'm here to just press you and tell you this morning that you are your own worst enemy. It's not sex. It's not bad people. It's not money. It's not your upbringing. It is you. Just you being born are an enemy of God. That sinful nature that's found within you. We're all born into it. Every single one of us. The example that I like to give you is this. Is any, anybody ever watch kids? Those precious little wicked vile things. Yeah, we love them so much. But man, do they not teach you a ton about the, the natural heart and the depravity of man, the sinfulness and wickedness and fallen state of the heart. You watch them, you spend some time with them. Like the example that I always give is, is simply this. Is there for a while my youngest was a biter, but he'd only bite his brother. I don't get it. So he, he was a biter. He would bite his brother. He didn't, if his brother was on him or doing something he didn't like, he would bite him. And what I know is this, is that is not model behavior in the Miller household. Bennett has never seen me go over to Mary like, give me the remote, boo. Uh-uh. And me bite her. One, I know better, right? I, I'm, I'm, I'm a smart man. I'm not going to do that because I know what comes back. You think a bite's bad, what she will send back my direction and so it's never been modeled in our home. Why? Because it's just naturally in them, right? This, this rebellion, this fallen state upon which they are in. And so it's never been modeled. They see that. And what, what the scriptures do is it just lines up with that and it teaches us what's happening. If we would just look at the scriptures and see, we can walk through and we can see exactly what's happening because in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, our nature, that's our nature. We are objects of God's wrath. We are fallen and we are sinful and we are broken. Every single one of us is what the scriptures teach. We're all, we all rebel and we are broken far beyond repair and hear me, I get it. I know the press back. Maybe it's your environment. Maybe some of that junk has dictated some of your, your, your issues or your stuff. Maybe mom and dad's crazy. Don't point fingers if they're in here this morning. Maybe that's it or it's a crazy uncle or cousin or a system that you've been brought up in. But, but hear me, that's not the problem. That's just a symptom of the problem. The problem is the heart. And so the direction I always like to go is with the Ten Commandments, and we just kind of play there for a moment, right? Because the Ten Commandments is really just a, a, just a basic moral standard of living. That's it. It's just a basic moral standard of living. And you know the don'ts, and we'll just play for a second. Uh, one of the very first things that you see is God says, don't have another God before me. And so what does that mean? It's not to worship another God, not to bow down and, and seek another God outside of the one and only true living God. 
But church, what happens is the moment that we take our eyes off of Jesus, the moment that, that we don't pursue Him and love Him and, and desire Him as utmost, uh, the moment that we long for or, th- or think of or want something more than we want God, what happens is that has become our God. And the very first moral standard that God says is not to have another God before me. And the reality is, is every single one of us in this room is guilty of that. He, he says not to steal. Do not steal. And, and it's crazy that I even have to define this in our culture, in our world today, but, but it is because we're, we're just so bent toward us. Oh, I don't steal. I just borrow for an extended period of time with no desire or intent to give it back, which is the definition of stealing. Even if you think you're borrowing or take, if you take something that's not yours with the intent of never giving it back or maybe down the road I'll give it back or whatever, the, if it's any other reason, you take something that doesn't belong to you. You know what that's called? Stealing. Stealing. Lying is the same way. Withholding truth, not giving truth when truth is needed, knowing something and not saying it whenever you need to say it and you're presented with the opportunity to. Lying is not just not telling the truth and, and, and telling somebody a, a falsehood or uh, something that's, that's wrong or contrary. Lying is even withholding information, and we're all guilty of that, every single one of us. And so we're 0 for 3 already. Over three already. And then we like to dabble and play in those other cute ones like murder. Okay, I've never taken the life of a man. And, and like, like we, we hang our hat on that until Jesus comes along and says, if you have hate in your heart towards someone, then you're guilty of murder. Then you, then you are just as guilty as the guy that pulls the trigger. Or adultery. We do the same thing. Well, I've never slept with another man's wife. Or, or the ladies, well, I've never slept with a, uh, another woman's man. But the reality is this, what the Bible teaches and what Jesus teaches is if you have lust in your heart towards someone, then you're just as guilty of adultery as the person that crawls in between the sheets. And so what I want us to do is feel the weight of the law. Feel that weight crush you because we can't keep it. You can't do it. And I know the inclination is I've, I've lied, but I'm not a liar. No, 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 you are a liar. And what we want to do is we want to try to gussy it up and make it pretty. But we, we have all blown it. Every single one of us is what the, t- the scriptures teach. We've all sinned because of who we are, the heart and the nature that's within us just by being born. And Romans chapter 1 says that we are all guilty. And so what I want to do real fast is I want to look at three places where sin rears its head. The first place is this, is that we love creation over the creator. Where this comes out to play the most is we love creation over the creator. And so we don't want God, but what do we want? We want his stuff. We want what God can do for us. And we don't say that with our mouth, but our lives reek of it, does it not? Oh God, if you just do this, or God, if you just do that, God, give me this, and then I'll... And we play that little game with God as if we can negotiate with the creator of the universe who has all things in the palm of his hand, well, God, if you just do, then I will. God doesn't need our I wills. God doesn't need our empty promises. God is God, and he's going to sustain and be far past what we are and ever will be. So what we learn from the scriptures is that everything was created for his glory was created for, for bringing praise and honor to him. But what we do is we want God to be our genie in a bottle and just give us stuff and just do for us. And we will try our best to be as good as we possibly can and do the, like, not do the real big things. And we're going to mess up and we're going to be okay with messing up here and there and doing some stuff like that. But, but God, we're going to do our best not to do the big things. If you just do for us and give for us what you've never promised. And so we do that little negotiating thing with them. 
And so that's where we get in trouble is because when God doesn't do something for us that he's never promised or never said that he would, then we get mad and grumpy at God. And then we want nothing to do with him. We want nothing to do with his church. We want nothing to do with his people because God didn't give me what he said he never would give me. And so what we see is that we love the creation over our creator. The second way that this rears its head and shows us is in this, is that we believe that we're smarter than God. Now, no one, no one says that. No one's going to say that or verbalize that with, with their mouth. But, but the games that we play shows that. And this is, let me kind of try to flesh this out for a moment. And so we'll do things like this, like God just doesn't understand my life. God just doesn't get it. He, he doesn't understand kind of uh, the role of, of obedience uh, when the scriptures were written, whenever they came to be. I mean, that's thousands of years ago. There's no way that it's applicable today. If there's an asterisk, there should be an asterisk in there, and it should have my picture because he just doesn't understand my situation. He just doesn't get it. He just doesn't understand it. He, and we play that game where we think that we're smarter than God. And so we look at his word, and there's like, there's no way that could apply to me or that could be what he meant. And so we'll, we'll even dance with that. There's even uh, uh, denominations that are dancing with that today. Well, God's word didn't mean that. It's got to mean this. Yeah, but that word and that scripture, if you kind of like stand on your head and you shake your leg twice and you cough one time, then it can mean this. And that's how we go to interpret things and we look at it. Church, hear me. God's word can never mean for us what it didn't mean to the original recipients. Ever. That's the rule of thumb. God's word means what God's word means and it says what it says and that's all it says and that's what it means. And there are literal words in the Bible that mean literal, real, true, right things. Period. And I don't care how great and how good and what your situation looks like and how sad and upset you are. I don't give a rip about that. What I give a rip about is what God's word says and we're going to base everything upon that. Because hear me, we are not smarter than God. And the illustration that I give you a few months ago was this, is we, ordered, we got a new chair for back at the sound booth that had four pieces, four pieces. I couldn't even put together a chair. I've got a college education. I've got two kids so I can survive. And I couldn't put together a daggum chair with four pieces. I had to resort to the, to the instructions. Goodness sakes, four pieces. I've put together cribs in my heyday, man, you know? And any dad in the room knows what that's like. And I couldn't put together a chair with four pieces without the instructions. And you're no different. There's not a one of us in this room that's any different. And we think that we know better than God. And God doesn't understand my life as it pertains to money, as it pertains to dating, as it pertains to relationships, as it pertains to marriage, as it pertains to obedience, as it pertains to you fill in the blank. And so we play that game with he just does not know my situation. And we like to justify our rebellion by pretending that we know better. The third way that this rears its head in, in us is this, is that we all fail to acknowledge God. We all fail to acknowledge God. Psalm 139 teaches that we were all knit together in our mother's room, that God knew us before our, our, we came to be in this world. And so that kind of plays out in two different ways. One is in our form and two is in our ability. First of all, in our form is simply this, is that, is that maybe you're six foot one, maybe you're, you're five foot three, maybe you're seven foot two. I, I don't know. But you had nothing to do with that. In your form, in your physicality, God knew and God created and God made you a certain size and a certain type and in a certain way. And you had nothing to do with that. Like I can't like just wish and try harder and, and, and get taller. 
It doesn't work that way. Why? Because God created me to be in my form when he knit me together in my mother's womb. And the second way is an ability. Is an ability. I don't know if you know this, but, but um, there are certain people that have just got that gift of, of um, maybe understanding and learning, and they're just like, like super like savvy in math. And I know for me, the route that I was heading whenever I was growing up, I was going to pharmacy until I took the basic college algebra. Well, that's not even in my major yet. And I wasn't taking like the Monday, Wednesday, Friday class. I was taking the Monday through Friday class. So I didn't even test in good enough to get into like three-day-a-week class. And so as I'm trying and I am learning and I'm doing everything that I can, I mean, this is basic college algebra. Would you really want this guy who couldn't pass basic college algebra to be putting together uh, the formulas for your drugs for you to be taking? Absolutely not. And so what I saw real quick is that God has gifted some people with certain things uh, and this learning and this ability, and then he's gifted other people with other certain things. So so even in our ability, and I tried and I kind of tried and I studied kind of hard Okay, lying is a sin. I, I just didn't have to drive. But what I learned real quick is that it wasn't easy for me and I didn't pick up on it fast. And there were other things that I was gifted in and other ways that God had created me and formed me. And if we're not careful, we will fail to acknowledge God has a hand in that and he does that. You can, you can try, but you have very little do, to do with it. Because why? Because God did it. The illustration that I always give you is this. And I grew up in the Jordan and Shaq era. That's the area that I grew up in when it comes to NBA basketball. And so for me, um, I can remember Shaquille O'Neal, man, just, just this mammoth of a man, like 7'3", 350. I mean, he was just, I mean, he was just a monster in the paint. And when they would feed it down to him, what would he do? He would just turn around, and he would slam it. And then he'd like do this like, big celebration thing, running up, and like, he'd chest bump guys, and he'd ah, and go crazy and all of this stuff. And I'm thinking, dude, are you serious? You're seven foot tall. To dunk it, you just raise your hands above your head, and you put it in the hoop. Dude, make a free throw, and then we'll go crazy. I mean, have you seen that form? I mean, it's awful. YouTube that junk. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's horrible. I mean, you make a free throw, then we're going to celebrate like crazy and go, go nuts for you. But dude, dunking the ball, you're seven foot three. If you can't dunk, there's a problem. Seven foot three. And so what it is, though, is, is that God did all of that. We like to go crazy about things that we think that we have done. So let's talk for a minute about the horrific reality of our sin, can we? Because Romans 6, 3 goes on and it says this, it says, For the wages of sin, the earning, what we get, what we deserve in our sin is death. And as I said earlier, that death is in twofold. It's the physical and it's the spiritual. So there's got to be a fix. That's the problem. That's the struggle. That's the condition we're in. So there's got to be a fix. And the fix is this. Romans 6, 23 goes on and it says this. For the wages of sin is death, but... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what we learn, what we know is this, is that only God can fix it. Only God can fix and make right what sin has destroyed and messed up. Flip over to Romans 5, 6 for just a second, just a page or two back. Romans 5, 6 says this, it says, For while we were still weak, while we're sinful, while we're lost, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time, Christ died for the lost. And then Paul's going to share some insight about that reality of Christ dying. And he says this in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps maybe for a good person one would even die. But God, and church, hear me, that is some of the sweetest words that you'll ever read in the Scriptures. This is the condition. This is the reality. Maybe somebody will die for somebody okay or good by the world's standards. But God, oh no, but God, 
God shows his love for us in the while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still, while we were an enemy of his, while we were against him, while we wanted nothing to do with him, while we rebelled and rebelled and rebelled, what happens? Jesus steps in to purchase us. He says, Dad, I'll take him. Dad, I'll go get him. Dad, I'll offer a way of rescue. Dad, I'll step in and be what they can't. I will offer all that we've got in the way of my life. So how does he do that? How does he purchase us? 1 Corinthians 15.3 just outlines what the gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15.3 tells us what the gospel is. And this is what Paul writes. He says, for I received, for what I received, I passed on to you as first importance. He's like, man, you're going to get this. This is very, very important. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. A better rendering of that would be Christ died because of our sins. He gave his life for our death. That's what he does. We're an enemy of God. We're alienated from God. We're sinful and we're wicked. And Jesus Christ dies because of our sins. Not for so we can kind of continue on sinning and doing what we want to do. And we can live how we want to live. Not for them so we can oh, bless their little heart. They'll be okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. No, he dies because of our sins. Because we're sinful and we're wicked. God steps in by the way of Jesus and he makes a way and he dies because of our sin. Because we sinned and we can't do it ourselves. And the thing that just gets me whenever you think about sin and you think about the cross is simply this. It's 2020. So Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. And so that would make our sin what? Future sins, right? So when Jesus... When God kills his son on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin, God being all-knowing and ever-present in every moment of every day that there has ever been or ever will be, God sees and knows good and well of our rebellion on yesterday. God sees and is well aware of our rebellion tomorrow. And what the cross tells me is that Jesus says, I'll take him anyways. They're going to say with their mouth that they love you, but their actions is going to show otherwise. They're going to say with their mouth that you're the greatest, but their actions are going to show otherwise. They're going to run your name in the mud. They're going to act a fool. They're going to do all of this stuff. And Jesus says, I'll take them. I'll take them. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. The resurrection is just simply evidence that all of our sin was absorbed on the cross. That's what that shows. Is that, is that our sins were, were answered for by the way of Jesus Christ on the cross. He appeased God by that. Ephesians 1, 7 says this. It says, in him we have redemption. In him who? Jesus. In Jesus we can be saved. We can be made right. It means to purchase. It's to buy back. We have redemption. How? Through the blood. That's the perfect sacrifice of all sacrifices. What the spilling of Jesus' blood is the forgiveness of trespasses. Trespasses is just a fancy word for sin. According to the riches of his grace. That's what Paul teaches the believers at Ephesus. And so my question is how? How are we born again? What does that mean? What does that look like? As we've talked about it a little bit last week, and as we're going to talk about it here for a moment, John 3, 3. If you want to turn there, you can turn there for a second. John 3, 3, what we have is Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the night, and he has these questions, and Jesus responds back to him, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
And so what we talked about last week is this is the work of the Holy Spirit, whereby he awakens in the heart of man the reality of their great need for Christ and regeneration takes place. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So what he's saying is this, is that we're dead. We're dead what? In our sin and our trespasses. That's what the scriptures teach, that in our sin and in our condition, we are dead enemies of God. And so what we need is to be made alive. What we need is ears that can truly hear the truth from Christ. We need eyes that can see Jesus and behold his beauty and his glory as, from his salvation as supremely beautiful. We need hearts that are soft and receptive to the word of God. What Jesus teaches is that we need new life. Church, we need to be born again. And this only has, happens by the, by the Holy Spirit of God supernaturally giving us a, a, a new spiritual life by connecting us to Jesus Christ through faith. That's the only way it happens. And so when God in the riches of his mercy and the greatness of his love and the sovereignty of his grace chose to regenerate us, to make us alive, to give us new birth, in that moment we're born again. In that moment we're born again. And when, we, when we're born again, we believe. What do we believe? We believe in the gospel. We believe in Jesus. We believe in this truth that has been given to us. Because what I've learned is this, is when there is fire, there is heat. And so when there is new birth, there is faith. And that's what the work of the Holy Spirit, Spirit does in us. Which brings me to my last point before we close. What happens as a result of that? We see our condition. We see the fix. We see the new birth. And when God gloriously saves us, there's something that happens in us. Our affections change. Our desires and our longings change. Matthew 22, we'll end here. Matthew 22, 35. A scripture that you're probably very well familiar with, but I want to read it and I want to look at it for just a second. And I want to challenge you for just a moment. Matthew twenty two thirty five 35 says this, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So they're trying to catch Jesus in some things, some inconsistencies. They're trying to disprove him, discredit him. Verse 36, it says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, this is Jesus' response, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment. That's what Jesus tells us to do. Love the Lord to God with every ounce of our being, everything in us, who we are, everything, our actions, every single thing about us. And so what I want to do is I want to challenge you for just a moment. And, and I believe this will probably be the most confrontational thing that we talk about all morning, but, but, but hear me, I love you enough to tell you the truth. God has called me to proclaim his gospel and to tell you the truth about us. And so I made a statement last week at the end of the service in preparation for today. And my hope was this, is that the Holy Spirit would stir your heart, would maybe uh, cause you to kind of look in a little bit and kind of assess and just really see where you're at, what God's doing in your heart, or if he's doing something, or if he's not, or if he already has. And just really just wanted to just, just kind of press you for a moment. But what I said is this, is let me lay all of my cards on the table. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you my hand. And, and the statement that I made is this, is that I just struggle to believe that everyone who walks in and out of these doors week in and week out know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And yes, I purposefully said it that way, Lord and Savior, because I think we know him as Savior and we want him as Savior, but the problem happens is when we call him Lord. And so what that means is when we call him, when we make him Lord of our life and Savior of our life, we like the Savior part because nobody wants, who wants to go to hell? Okay, good, that's what I thought. None of us, right? Absolutely. No, we don't want to go there. We don't want to be separated for eternity. The reality of what the scriptures, the picture that it paints of the reality of that place, separation from God, torment forever and ever and ever and ever. 
So we want to be rescued from that. The problem is, is we, we, we don't want to make him Lord of our life. We don't want to give him the keys. We don't want to allow him to have say or authority or rule over us. And so I just struggle to believe that everyone that walks in this place week in and week out or, or makes this a place where you worship or where you gather, where you, you do friendship or you do relationship, I just struggle to believe that everybody here knows Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that's not me judging. That's not me. I don't know that I've not had a conversation with everybody whereby we've had those type of conversations. I think the thing that scares me is the lack of spiritual pulse and desire to do and the desire to, to, for obedience and the desire to allow God to, to just move and work and do whatever he wants to do in and through you. And so what I would say to you this morning is this, is if you are a moral church-attending person who has no desires for Jesus no longing for him, uh, uh, no real drive for obedience to what he has said, then you're probably not a Christian. And I just feel like that's the most loving thing that I could say to you this morning. And this is not like some weird, like, let me try to trick him and try to convince him otherwise, because, because hear me, there, there is nothing that you can do on, on, uh, on this, in this planet that could convince me otherwise that I belong to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I feel like I'm indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I feel like there's conviction there. I feel like there's a a number of things that he is doing. There's a longing and a desire for him. A longing and a desire for obedience. But just because you're a good moral church attending person and you have no, and there's no affection or desire for Jesus would lead itself to point to the fact that you don't belong to him. Because hear me, if you are his, there will be an affection for Jesus. That there will be an affection for Jesus, even if it is a small, smoldering wick. There will be something there. Because I have been there where you just feel like you've been kicked in the soul and you have to crawl and drag yourself into this place. But there is still a desire and affection for Jesus, no matter how small it is deep within the soul. Why? Because he lives within me and he is pulling me in that direction. So us being in the Bible Belt, good southern folk, who believe in Jesus because everybody in this world nowadays believes in Jesus. But is it belief unto faith, unto relationship, unto desire and longing and seeing yourself whereby you are sinful and wicked? So being in the Bible, but if you have no affection, no desire, wanting of Jesus, or a desire to be obedient, but you're a good moral person who goes to church and you can remember a time when you were seven and you were baptized, I just want to challenge you this morning that maybe you're not saved. Maybe the act that you did that that morning was for a different motive or for a different reason. But it wasn't truly for Jesus himself. Maybe you're living a moral pattern that had been established for you or, or set out or modeled for you. Because without an affection and a love for Jesus, I would just lovingly challenge you with your salvation. And we see that there in Matthew it's about your heart growing in affection for Jesus, not the law or behaving a certain, it's not behavioral modification. No, it's a love relationship whereby we enter into and we grow in. And so this passage, what we see here is not a list of things to do, but rather who you are and who you're becoming. A greater love for Christ drives you to him. A greater love for Jesus and a recognition and a seeing who he is stirs up in you this desire for obedience. And so the testimony of who any who belong to Jesus is a testimony of growth and affection for the person of Christ. And where I would want to press you this morning is this, is that for whatever reason, if your glory days as a Christian in your life were the days following youth camp when you were a teenager, that is a sad, sad place to be. 
And, and I'm not saying that there won't be this high and there won't be this excitement, but what I'm saying is this, if there is not a natural desire and inclination to follow Jesus and want Jesus all the more every day, and hear me, the Christian life is an up and down roller coaster that we ride in the mundane of every day hitting you in the face, but there is this longing and desire and this pressing of your soul for more and more of Jesus. And if that's not there, man, then I would beg of you to check your heart. I would beg of you just to, to, to be uh, aware of the Holy Spirit maybe making that a reality in your life. And so our affection for Jesus should be ever increasing as we grow in, in knowledge of him and our affection for him. See, to be a follower of Jesus, to be one who is a believer means that there will be an ever-growing affection for Jesus that leads us to what? Glad obedience. And so if you're worn out and you're beat down, that doesn't mean that you're not a Christian because we've all been there, Right? I mean, that's what we love about the scriptures. Look at the men and women who followed Jesus. Look at, look at David for a moment. How was he described? A man after God's own heart. I mean, he'd committed adultery and had his best friend murdered. I mean, that's what he's done. But he's described after that as a man after God's own heart. And he says things like this, like this, Oh God, how long will you forsake me? Will you forget me forever? So I'm not saying that there's not some dark days of the soul. But there's going to be an ever-growing affection for Christ. Ezekiel 19 teaches that we get a new heart, and we need a new heart. And my question for you is this, have you ever got a new heart? Have you been born again? Because it's not conformity to a moral code, but it's a newness of life. And Matthew tells us who we are and where we're becoming, not what to do. So what I would lovingly challenge you with is this, is that our conversion is the beginning, not an end. The conversion is only the start of what God has got for us and what he's going to do for us. And that every single one of us is in process. And thank God that we are. Thank God that we are in process. And this process is us being covered by God's unconditional and steadfast love, whereby he encourages us and he presses us on into the affections of Christ and maturity in Jesus. So as the band comes back up, my prayer this week has been simply this, is that God would save like the trustees and I, we met this morning and we prayed that God would save. This week, Tyler and I, we prayed that God would save, that God would move. God just pressed upon my heart as we're looking at salvation, the reality of our great need for him. And my prayer was that, that God would awaken in the people of New Life Baptist Fellowship who maybe walk in the doors week in and week out who know a lot about Jesus, but they don't personally know him. They've never been born again. They've never come to life, and they're still dead in their sin. And so my hope for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit will lovingly challenge you and make you aware of your great need for Jesus. And the only way that that can happen is to understand your condition, to understand and see that you're lost. You can never be found until you realize that you're lost. You can never be saved until you realize that you're lost. You can never become alive until you realize that you're dead. And my prayer and my begging of the Holy Spirit this week is that God, show us, show us who's dead. God, if there be one that don't know you, awaken in them the reality of their need for you. And then what do we do with that? We look to the fix. The fix is what? Jesus on the cross. It's the glorious news of the gospel that he, that he died on the cross for us and that he was buried and that he was raised three days after that. And we push everything that we've got into that reality and we trust and we believe whereby that faith and that trust changes everything about us. Which leads us to the next point that we get, we get new birth. We're born again. When the Holy Spirit makes us aware of our lostness and our great need for Him, that is the working of God where He supernaturally shows us and He regenerates us and He gives us that new heart that we need. And then as a result of being saved, as a result of being saved, 
our affections and our desires are going to change. You can't have Jesus living in you and you not be like Jesus. You can't spend time around Jesus and not be like Jesus. Jesus says himself to love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, strength, everything in us. It's to be about that love relationship with him. And what I know is what you love changes you because what you love, you run after. And as you run after that, it begins to shape you and mold you. And so my question maybe for you this morning, if you are a believer, is what are you running after? Maybe you're running after the wrong things. And so the next step in that is not regeneration. The next step in that is not new birth. The next step in that is just repentance. Whereby God, with his sweet and lovingness in the Holy Spirit, reveals to us our sin and our wickedness and our rebellion even in him. And so I don't know where you're at this morning, but my question for you is this. Are you saved? Are you saved? I mean, I, I, I don't... Can we step away from the churchy junk and just be honest with ourselves and answer that question honestly? I mean, have you even thought about Jesus this week outside of Sunday morning? Have you even had a longing to be obedient? Have you even had a longing to open up his word? Have you even had a desire at all to follow him and tell somebody else about him? Because all I know is this, is that if none of, if you can't answer yes to any of those, then the reality of you being a believer and follower of Jesus is very, very slim. Maybe you're just in a dark moment and your heart has become a little calloused in your sin. And I know we're in church and by gosh, we're Southern folk and praise God and hallelujah and bless their little hearts. But I guess I'm just tired of that junk because you know what we're doing? We are loving people straight to hell. We're allowing you to sit and just uh, uh, roll around in your sin and your shame and your wickedness and your rebellion to God. And we're like, oh, bless their heart. They come to church. They've got to be good old, good old church going safe folk. And coming to church never saved not one person. A relationship with Jesus is what saves people. And when Jesus is lifted out, he will draw them into himself is what the scriptures teach. And so by gosh, that's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to tell you about Jesus and his immense love for you. You don't have to play games anymore. You don't have to just walk through a door and shake a hand and look nice and neat and pretend to have it all together. No, he wants you falling apart, messed up, janky, screwed up. He wants all of that of you. That's what the cross points us to. So we just get outside of ourselves and the reality of this crazy, stupid church culture that we've created. We can just realize and see that Jesus doesn't want you to play games. He wants you to have a new heart. And that's not something you can do. That's only something that the Holy Spirit can do. And there's going to be a love and there's going to be a desire for him that's unmatched by anything. I'm not saying it's not going to get, get shifted up sometimes. Or it's going to become foggy. But what I'm saying is at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit loves you enough to draw you back to him and to show you of your sin. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know what God stirred in your heart, but these guys are going to lead us. They're going to lead us in a song of response. And so I just want to beg of you this morning just to check your heart, evaluate and assess where you're at. And in this moment, if, if the Holy Spirit's stirring in you this reality, this need for Jesus, then would you just give in to that? Would you just believe? And I want to do this. I just want to do this for a moment. And I, and I just feel like this is just kind of the leading of, of God here because I know we're in church and we've been coming to church for a while now and we look nice and neat and we've got our button-ups on and we're all put together and fancy. And my goodness, what would they think if I go down? I've been saved. I've been unsaved for 17 years now coming here worshiping the Jesus that I don't love. But what would they think if I go down? If your concern is about what they think, who gives a rip about them? 
the only opinion of anyone in this room that matters is that of Jesus. Not, not the preacher, not the trustees, not the people that are serving. The only opinion in the room that matters is that of Christ. And so I beg of you, if that is your fear this morning, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. If, if God reveals in you this need for him to salvation, we're going to celebrate like crazy, church. Yes, your friends, yes, your family, there's not going to be one question. Are you kidding me? I thought you, no, 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 hallelujah, God's brought somebody from death to life. So don't you sit there and don't you let the fear of man or the opinion of another be the driving force of why you don't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because think of how silly that's going to be when you stand before him one day. He's like, I'm sorry, I never knew you. But Jesus, I was in your church every day. Uh, no, I don't know you. But, but Jesus, I did all these good things for you, and I did this, uh, I just never knew you. But Jesus, I was scared of what mama would think, or I was scared of what my Sunday school teacher would think, or I was scared of what my kids would think, or I'm scared of what my best friends would think. Or I'm... And Jesus would be like, are you serious? The only opinion that's ever mattered has been mine. Why would you care about what they think? Why would you care about what they would say? Because what it's going to reveal in their heart is that they don't celebrate, and if they don't care a lot about your soul, is that they probably don't belong to me either. So I don't know what God's stirred in your heart this morning, but I want to encourage you, man, as they lead us, if Jesus, by way of the Holy Spirit, has stirred or pricked or done anything in your heart this morning, don't you sit there not knowing Christ is your Savior. Because the greatest decision that you'll ever, ever make in your entire life is not what job you work, how much money you have in the bank, what, what kind of car you drive, or the person that you marry. All of that is secondary compared to the greatest relationship that you ever have the privilege and honor of entering into, and that's with Jesus Christ. So I beg of you, don't leave this place not knowing Jesus. He is worth it, and your eternity is at stake. Father, stir this morning. God, don't let me have just, God, there's no scare tactic here at all. Just a real assessment of where, we, where we're at and who we belong to. And Father God, what I've learned is this, and what I preached and proclaimed last week is simply this, is that I can't do that. God, only the work of the Holy Spirit can do that. So Father, we beg of you this morning in this place, save the lost. If there be one, if there be two, if there be three, if there be a hundred that don't know you. Oh God, please save. Shame we pray. Amen. You guys stay in. The band's going to lead us in this song of response. If you have more questions about what it means to be, be saved or God's stirring in your heart, please, I beg of you, don't stay in the condition that you're in.